Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's going to get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable Price point comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health here in Toronto. Cutting-edge, state-of-the-art, compassionate facility. Right now, it is Mental Health Awareness Week. This is the time when they need you most. This is the time when you can make a real difference when it comes to doing something about the mental health crisis and the devastating opioid epidemic, the overdose epidemic that we're currently experiencing, losing 20 people every day. They need your help. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. Hey, our sister show Commons has just wrapped a fascinating, jaw-dropping season about cults. There's a lot of interest in cults these days. Commons' approach to this was unlike anything that I've heard elsewhere. And this episode is uh, no exception. Check it out. How are you? Not too bad, you. Good. Good. Did you find the place? Yeah, it's so pretty. In September, the Commons team took a trip out to the eastern townships of Quebec to meet a woman with a pretty extraordinary story. I'll just tell my story as you ask it, but there's a lot of uh, political logistics. And Alison Steele was kind enough to invite us to her home to tell it. Yeah, I've only lived here for a year and a half, and... And you're like, it's a lot of adjustment. Well, I've been through a big transition. But it's good. It's good. Yeah. Is there anywhere we should leave our shoes? Allison Steele knew from an early age that her family wasn't like other families, that her mother wasn't like other mothers. She was always there physically, but uh, mentally not so much. I didn't understand why she wasn't like my friend's mothers, you know. Allison was never close to her mother, Jean Steele. My earliest memories of my mother was that she wasn't there for me. She wasn't there for me. Like she, if there was a school function or something like that, she, she, she would be there, but she was always in the background. She wasn't there to support me. She couldn't. Uh, and so I felt the distance, you might say, but I didn't really understand why. 
And when I would come home and whatnot, she'd usually be sitting in the dark. She'd be sitting in the dark and uh, I'd come home and try and tell her what I was doing and whatnot. And she, she would hear me, but she wouldn't really ask questions, you know, like, oh, that was fun. And gee, you know, what else did you do? You know, she wouldn't have a conversation with me, let's say. But it wasn't just that she was cold or aloof. She would sometimes do things that just didn't make sense. She would, uh, she would take like red spray paint and she would spray it all over the ceiling in the living room, like just all swirls. And I'd come home and I'd see that and I'd like, oh my God, mom, what, no, what the heck? And then one time out on our long front porch, she lined up all the chairs like she was in a, on a bus and she took tree branches from outside and covered them all in tinfoil. And she made this little road. And I went out and I saw that and I said, well, what is this? She said, well, it's Sherbrooke Street. She would write little uh, words on the, on the walls. I don't know, little random phrases, codes, codes, C-O-E or B-O-E or, or just something like that. And I had no idea what they meant. And she would just write them on the walls, you know, and I was like, what is this? It was many, many years later that Allison would find out the truth. Her mother was one of dozens and dozens of people who had been experimented on. She had been caught up in one of the most notorious programs of the Cold War, MKUltra, the CIA's mind control experiments. I thought that I was the only person that ever went through this type of thing. I had no idea that anybody else experienced what my mother had gone through. Because this happened to my mother when I was five. She was saying that she felt like she was Jesus being crucified on the cross. MK Ultra was putting to test a concept that is extremely disputed even today. The Canadian government and the CIA were paying a renowned Montreal doctor to brainwash dozens of people, including Allison's mother, Jean Steele. I'm Archie Mann, and this is Commons. More after the break. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, it's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. 
And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool, doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer. And it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. I call on the defendant, Rudolf Hess. Einige meiner Kameraden hier können bestätigen. The voice you're hearing there is Rudolf Hess, who served as Adolf Hitler's deputy Führer for much of World War II. After the war, Hess was tried for war crimes during the Nuremberg trials. But in the run-up to the proceedings, he claimed to have amnesia. And so, he was examined by a team of psychiatrists. And one of those psychiatrists was a prominent doctor who was working at McGill University, Ewan Cameron. Cameron was the only Canadian, I believe, who was invited to Nuremberg. My name is Lisa Ellenwood. I'm an investigative journalist with CBC News, The Fifth Estate. Lisa was the producer of a CBC podcast series called Brainwash that explored the MKUltra experiments in Canada and their legacy. Dr. Cameron would go on to be one of the most acclaimed psychiatrists in the world. He was one of the founders of the World Psychiatric Association. He was president of the American Psychiatric and president of the Canadian Psychiatric Association. He was one of the top psychiatrists in North America. He had real knowledge about psychiatric treatment. Cameron and his colleagues eventually determined that Rudolf Hess was fit enough to stand trial, and he was eventually sentenced to life in prison. But Cameron's time at Nuremberg had an enormous impact on him. He viewed the Nazi war criminals as mentally ill sociopaths who had been allowed to rise up and take over an entire nation. And he believed it was the responsibility of social scientists and medical professionals, especially psychiatrists, to prevent that from ever happening again. Now, not only is this an obvious misreading of what took place in Nazi Germany, but it demonstrates just how world-historic Cameron's ambitions were and helps explain some of the lengths that he was willing to go to achieve his goals. By the 1940s, Cameron was the kind of accomplished physician that hospitals and universities were desperate to have on staff. Born in Scotland, he trained across Europe and practiced in both Canada and the United States. His great ambition was to cure schizophrenia and earn himself a Nobel Prize. In 1943, he was invited by McGill University to be the school's first ever chair of psychiatry. And in addition, he was given a large grant from the Rockefeller Foundation. The publisher of one of the main Montreal newspapers gave him money as well, and he was gifted a mansion on Mount Royal for a new institute. It would become the Allen Memorial Institute, a new psychiatric facility for Cameron to personally run. The Allen Memorial 
would become infamous for the strange and brutal brainwashing experiments that Cameron would oversee in the Institute. And here, I think it's important to talk about why we're exploring MKUltra and brainwashing in this season on cults. The concept of brainwashing is one of the most contested terms amongst people who study so-called cults. In the 1960s and 70s, there was a real and constant fear that messianic leaders were quote-unquote brainwashing young people into joining their new strange movements. But where did this concept even come from? Its roots lie in the Korean War. There were American POWs in Korea who behaved very strangely, didn't want to return to the United States, told the Koreans that the Americans had used chemical warfare when the Americans were saying they hadn't. So they thought, okay, well, no American would do these things. There must be another reason. They've developed brainwashing techniques. The Americans became convinced that communist countries had developed mind control techniques that could be used to control anybody they wanted to. Whether chemical agents, hypnosis, or something else entirely, the Americans believed strongly in these quote-unquote Soviet brain perversion techniques. Here's former CIA chief psychologist John Gittinger speaking to the CBC's Fifth Estate in the 1980s. There was continued pressure put upon anybody within uh, the agency in connection with trying to explain or understand uh, brainwashing. So we were charged with rather an elaborate attempt to try to find out chemical, psychological, any kind of means that people could use to influence the behavior of the people. The military and intelligence establishment became so concerned with this so-called brainwashing that they decided to get the top American, Canadian, and British military scientists together to discuss the issue. The meeting's title was Communist Brainwashing Techniques During the Korean War. The meeting was held at the Ritz-Carlton in downtown Montreal in 1951. And one of the men asked to present at the meeting was a McGill psychologist named Donald Hebb. He was head of the psychology department at uh, McGill Allen Memorial as well. And they invited him to come and talk to them about the research that he was doing into sensory deprivation. The military decided to fund his experiments into sensory deprivation, which was believed to be an effective mind control tool. Donald Hebb is there. He gives them their, his pitch for his sensory deprivation research. He gets funded. I think it was mainly from Canadian military, probably some from those other countries as well. And he sets off to do this incredible research project. So he spends two years or something on it. What he does is he sets up a program and he uses students, McGill students, to participate. And he pays them incredibly well. It was something like $20 a day, which was more than an associate professor was making at the time. And so all these young people sign up to do this. And what they're expected to do is just be in this sensory deprivation container for as long as they can be in there. They're allowed to come out and go to the bathroom and have a smoke and eat and things like that. But they have to stay in this container and their arms are restricted. They can't see, they can't hear anything. And like nobody can do it. 
And you're allowed to leave the experiment whenever you want to leave, basically. I think someone maybe stayed for five days was the most that a young person stayed. But around three days, I think, was the max. And what happened was, you know, you'd start to hallucinate. It was horrifically traumatic and disturbing. And there was sometimes some memory loss after that would take days to to return. What Heb didn't know is that his experiments were being closely monitored. The CIA had a plant who was a graduate student or something that was working with Heb at the time, reporting back. Heb's work was sent to the CIA. We know that there was communication there. By the time Heb's experiments had come to an end, the CIA had secretly concluded that they needed to go much further than just understanding this so-called brainwashing. They needed to learn how to do it themselves. CIA Director Alan Dulles said that brain warfare was the next front in the Cold War. So in 1953, the CIA approved their top-secret mind control project. They codenamed it MKUltra. The CIA would secretly fund research into brainwashing methods. And one of the first people they reached out to was a colleague of Donald Hebb's at McGill University, Dr. Ewan Cameron. And we know that, that Hebb was working at the same time as Ewan Cameron at the Allen and that they would have known each other for sure. And somebody from the CIA through a front organization reached out to Cameron and said, you should apply for this fund. And so that's how it happened. Shortly after he applied, he started to receive money through the front organization. Here's CIA chief psychologist John Gittinger again. Those of us who were involved with trying to find out something about brainwashing, yes, this is the reason that we were interested in Dr. Cameron's work. Unlike Donald Hebb, Dr. Cameron's research wasn't going to rely on volunteers. Instead, he was going to use the psychiatric patients at the Allen Institute. One of them was a woman named Jean Steele. Jean Steele, Allison's mother, had by all accounts a decent upbringing. She grew up in Westmount, an affluent neighborhood in Montreal. My grandparents, her parents, sent her to the best school. She went to St. Helens School out here in Denham. It was a girls' school. She did horseback riding, skiing. She was very social. Uh, you know, she had lots of friends. She grew up, worked as a waitress, and eventually got married. However, Jean's life began to change when she started to have children. Before I was born, she had my parents had a child, uh, a baby girl, and uh, she had spina bifida. So she was sent away to Butters Institution here in East Bolton, out in the townships. And at that time, they couldn't do anything. You know, obviously, to lose a child, it's very traumatic and, you know, can never get over that. But her doctors were more or less said, we'll try again, you know, and have another child. So that's when I came along. She wasn't able to handle it. I guess she she just thought that maybe I might die too. I don't know what it was that sent her into a state like that, depression, whatever. I, I really don't know. Jean was suffering from severe postpartum depression after the loss of her first child and after the birth of Allison. 
It was around this time that a highly renowned psychiatrist, Dr. Cameron, had just established a new psychiatric institution in downtown Montreal. My grandparents had heard that Dr. Cameron was this renowned doctor coming from Scotland and he was, you know, renowned psychiatrist or a doctor and he would be able to help these patients that had postpartum depression. But of course, when you're admitted, they don't tell you what you're going to do. Dr. Cameron's concept was that he could help people by removing their negative, their anxiety, like kind of erasing their brain and reprogramming them. Dr. Cameron's so-called treatments had two major components to them. First, there's the psychic driving. Like you're wearing a football helmet with speakers in the head, in the ears, and you're forced to wear that for 16 hours a day, basically, listening to these messages. Or in pillows. I think he also had them in pillows. Here's Lisa reading out one of the messages that Cameron would force his patients to listen to for hours and hours and hours on end. You get along with people now. You are not afraid of others, and you are very pleased to be with them. People like you, and your relationship with people is good. You are an adult, and you want to accept the responsibilities of a wife and a mother. As you feel better, you like to see things neat and tidy. If you see things disorderly like papers on the floor, you pick them up, and you look after things as you look after yourself. You get along with people now. You get along with people People now. like you. You are not afraid of others. You like you to see things neat and tidy. You are, you an, are adult. an adult. You are not afraid of others, and you are very you see things disorderly like papers on the look after things of a wife and a mother. You get along with people now. So this last thing, you if you see papers on the floor, you pick them up. They put that into the messages to see if what they were doing was actually working. So if people in the institute were wandering around picking things up on the floor, then they felt like their psychic driving techniques were actually effective. And in order to make people more receptive to psychic driving, Cameron would sometimes give them high doses of a new experimental drug. It is colorless, tasteless, odorless. D. Lysergic acid diethylamide. LSD. LSD was a central part of many MKUltra experiments. The CIA at one point, I mean, while this mind control brainwashing research was being done, learned about LSD. It was being produced by a Swiss manufacturer, and they decided that this was like the secret weapon and that they needed to really get serious about it. So they bought up the world supply of LSD and used it at their black sites around the world, testing on people, and used it, sent it out to the various institutions that were doing research for them through MKUltra. And Dr. Cameron was an enthusiastic convert to the drug's potential. Cameron obviously thought, okay, this could be great to help break down people's resistance to psychic driving and just, you know, could be good for, for treatments of mental health also. 
Velma Orlico, a woman who would later go public about her experience at the Allen Institute, was one of the women given high doses of LSD by Cameron. She was given LSD multiple times, totally unsupervised. Like she would get an injection, she'd be left in her room, and she would have, you know, these incredible, awful, traumatic experiences. She had no idea what was happening to her. Alongside psychic driving, the other essential part of Dr. Cameron's process was something known as depatterning. And that meant inducing patients into a completely incompetent, childlike state. What I'm going to read is a, is a document from a woman's medical file when she was at the Allen Memorial in 1960. This was a doctor who was working with Cameron, and it says, On March 12th, she was considered completely depatterned in that she was incontinent, mute, had swallowing difficulty with concomitant accumulation of mucus. So he wanted to bring people to a state where they were basically a blank slate. And so depatterning was that whole process that brought them to that state. So it was extreme electroshock therapy. It was weeks and weeks of sleep treatment, drug-induced sleep treatment, sensory deprivation, psychic driving. Sometimes people didn't get parts of it. Like some people didn't get the LSD. Some people had more sleep treatment than others. And it was just to get them to that place where they could then reprogram them, basically. It was this kind of treatment that Jean Steele was subjected to when she arrived at the Allen Institute. And remember, she was being treated for postpartum depression. Allison has her mother's files from her time at the Allen Institute. She let us read through some of them. Oh, wow. So, yeah, <laughs> you do have the original, uh, yeah. original envelope that, here. Jean Catherine. Safe. This is interesting. Just a psychiatric evaluation. Patient is a tall, neatly dressed woman. As soon as she entered the examiner's office, she started to talk spontaneously, and the rapport was easily established. She was excited, smiled, and cooperated, talked easily on any topic. She declared that she was not mentally ill, stated that it should be her husband that is in this hospital. (laughs) (laughs) That's pretty good. She doesn't sound too, too, uh, too messed up <laughs> No, I, that at all, right? <laughs> yeah, there was no verbal statement, a frank mood disturbance. She emphasized on several occasions during the examination. She never felt as well as at the present time, that her mind was never as clear as now. I mean, it sounds like she's, you know, she's a normal person. Maybe she's obviously was having difficulties during this time. Maybe yes. she doesn't want to admit it, but, yeah. you know. This yeah, and you didn't is, talk about it back then, exactly, right? right? You don't talk about and it. It's very strange. Their diagnostic impression that they got of her was affective schizophrenia. I mean, nowhere here is she talking about hearing voices or or anything like that. And also, of course, hysteria, question mark, because, you know, she's a woman. <laughs> but it was the treatments that they gave Jean that were the most startling details of the files. Electric shock treatments, ECTs, massive doses of LSD, other kind of barbiturates. I can't even pronounce the name, but all of these other heavy-duty barbiturates. They put her in a coma, induced coma for eight weeks while they played these tapes in her head. And she, 
she was looking around, she said, and she was saying, what are these, you know, these sounds? And then there's people watching me and, and, and all these TVs and everything all around the room and they're watching me and I, I just want to get out of here. I want to, I want to get out of here. I want to go home. Jean Steele spent years going in and out of treatment at the Allen Institute. Her family never knew exactly what sorts of treatment she was being subjected to. But there were times when she made it clear that she didn't want to go back. When she lived in Bedford and she was driving her back to Montreal, up university, to go up to the hospital, my father told me she literally opened the door. She was going to jump out. She didn't want to go. And he had to grab her back. And I thought, oh, my God. So that goes to show how aware she was of what was going to happen to her or what might happen to her when she was back there. Not fun. <laughs> and she, she wasn't better. It took her soul, just took her soul right out of her, you know, because uh, she certainly had one before, but she didn't after that. We know of almost 80 victims who were experimented on by Dr. Cameron. And Lisa says that many of them had a lot in common with one another. One of the things that I think has really disturbed me about the whole story is that I think in some ways he may have targeted certain people. And because, because I talked to so many people, I noticed that there seemed to be a lot of young women who were subjected to these extreme experiments, right? And so it was young women who... A lot of them had had a number of babies, like there was one woman who had had five children in four years. She had twins and other children. She was 24 years old, and she was exhausted, and she perhaps had some kind of postpartum depression. So it's it's just is so disturbing to me that there were so many young women that were targeted and severely damaged. Cameron experimented on pregnant women, giving them high doses of LSD and subjecting them to ultra-shock therapy. He even did this to professionals who came to work with him. There was a, a young colleague of his who was, I think she was a resident in psychiatry, Mary Morrow, who came in and she was applying for some kind of internship or something in his department. And she, in the assessment interview or whatever, she told him that she was feeling anxious or depressed or something. And he said, okay, well, you should come and we'll admit you for a bit and we'll, you know, fix you up. And then he ran her through all of these, all of these experiments. And this was one of his colleagues, students that he did this to. For him to be able to do that to this brilliant young psychiatrist in training to bring her in and subject her to this. Like, it's just, <laughs> it's quite something. And of course, Cameron's methods did absolutely nothing to help any of these women. There's a story about one woman who remembers Cameron bringing her into a group of other residents and saying, this woman is hopelessly incurable. And then she was sent to Verdun Hospital to just, you know, treatments were done. She was going to be institutionalized for the rest of her life. And a psychiatrist at that hospital recognized that she was not severely mentally disturbed. And he was able to help her and get her out. And she was 
you know, quite damaged in the end, but still able to have a have a normal life. So how is it that Dr. Cameron was able to get away with this for so long? After all, many other doctors and nurses worked at the Allen Institute alongside him. They helped subject his patients to these cruel and inhumane treatments. There are great interviews with his colleagues from the time. I mean, there are nurses that have come out and talked about it later, but many of them did say they were concerned, right? That they didn't think that he, in the end, was a good researcher. He was impatient. He just didn't have good technique in, like, he wasn't trained well or he wasn't interested really in doing a proper process through his research. Like, maybe there were people talking behind his back about how they were concerned about it. But this man was the the founder of this institute. He was one of the top psychiatrists in North America. I mean, how could anybody really do anything to stop him? Here's a former colleague of Cameron's, Elliot Emanuel, speaking about him to the CBC's Fifth Estate in the 1980s. He was uh, an authoritarian, ruthless, power-hungry, nervous, tense, angry man. Not very nice. Cameron's power, the hold he had on people, didn't just apply to the staff, but to his patients as well. Velma Orlico, one of the women Cameron experimented on, once said that she absolutely idolized the man. Quote, I thought he was God. I don't know how I could have been so stupid. A lot of us were naive. We thought psychiatrists had the answers. Here was the greatest in the world with all these titles. Unquote. Allison says that her mother fell under his sway as well. He would make the patients fall in love with him because he would treat them. He would say, you know, nice things to them, whatever. And I think my mother said one time, she said, I think I, I'm in love. I'm in love with the doctor. Now, I don't want to make too fine a point of it, but to me, Dr. Ewan Cameron sounds like the definition of a cult leader, egotistical, messianic, and utterly willing to use people, especially vulnerable women, to satisfy his own desires. But were any of Cameron's methods actually effective at brainwashing people? Remember, that was the ostensible reason that the CIA funded these initiatives in the first place. Ewan Cameron carried on with his work until he basically retired. So Dr. Cameron retired from the Allen Memorial in 64. After he left, the director of the Allen Memorial, Dr. Cleghorn, did an evaluation of Cameron's work, specifically psychic driving, depatterning. He had two doctors at the Institute interview patients, talk to other people at the Allen Memorial, and do an evaluation about whether the treatments were effective or not. And they they did it, and they basically said that it was not effective, the depatterning, and that people were actually damaged by it. And so they stopped all of those extreme treatments. Most of the doctors, I think one carried on for a while. But so they they realized right away that you can't brainwash somebody. You can't reprogram someone. 
1957, Cameron was asked in an interview if his methods resembled brainwashing, and he denied it. Here's a clip which appeared in CBC's podcast series, Brainwashed. This uh, type of recording, playing the recording back to the patient over and over again, sounds something like the conditioning technique in The Brave New World. Does it have any similarity at all to it, or uh, to communist brainwashing, for instance? No, it certainly doesn't, uh, because uh, what we are attempting to do is to bring into operation aspects of the patient's own personality. We are not trying to impose upon the individual things which are probably might be quite foreign to him and which uh, would be at marked variance, as in the case of brainwashing, with the kind of person that he naturally is. Does it have any adverse effects on the patient's health or mental outlook after he's been treated with it? No, and, and otherwise we wouldn't use it. The patient is uh, usually very much better afterwards, and our problem is to ensure that that improvement is lasting. In retrospect, it seems obvious that you can't radically reshape someone into whatever you want them to be. Most of the initial research into so-called communist brainwashing has been debunked. And there was almost no accountability for Cameron's crimes. The Canadian government, which helped fund Cameron's research alongside the CIA, has settled with 77 people over their treatment at the Allen Institute. But the government has never publicly apologized for it. The one thing is the Canadian government never provided a list. They would have had the documents. They could have figured out who'd been experimented on and reached out to them. They never did that. And Cameron himself never reckoned with his actions. Instead, he was further lauded. 1961, while he was still conducting his experiments at the Allen, Cameron was elected the president of the World Psychiatric Association. He headed the group for six years and died in a hiking accident in 1967. It's likely that Cameron never knew about the CIA's secret funding of his research. Instead, he was motivated by his own narcissistic desire to be a great scientist. I mean, even his son, Duncan, who we interviewed, said this was a, an extremely ambitious man. He wanted to win the Nobel Prize. He wanted to, he wanted to cure schizophrenia. And so he was at this point in his career where he was willing to push the boundaries of what really was acceptable in order to advance science. I think some people would argue that of any of the other MKUltra projects, he took his to the farthest extreme. I just think that the advancement of science was more important to him than individual suffering or damage that he was doing. Jean Steele never talked to her daughter about what happened to her. Allison's father talked to her about it when she was a teenager, but she didn't fully understand it. But she was still so angry at her mother for not being as outwardly loving as she needed her to be. I was a teenager and I was like, yeah, whatever, I don't know. He didn't sit me right down and explain it. You know, he, well, your mother this and your mother that and this and that. And I was like, they were all just bickering. And it's like, I, I just didn't want to know. I didn't want to know. It wasn't until many years later, after her mother had passed, that Allison saw a Fifth Estate documentary about the Allen Institute. And she decided she wanted to find out more. 
Her father had tried to apply for compensation while Jean was still alive, but he wasn't able to get access to her files, so the government denied the claim. So Allison decided to hire a lawyer and try again for herself, and she was finally able to receive her mother's files. And then when I saw the, the documentation of everything, I was like, oh my God. And she never said a word about it. She would never know, not talk a word about it. I couldn't believe it. And that's when I started reading everything. And I was, you, you, couldn't, you couldn't read it all. It was too hurtful. And it was only once she really understood the way that they had tortured her mother that she was able to start to forgive her. I got used to the idea that the way she was, I mean, even though I, I was angry at her all the time, I was always angry at her. Poor thing. She, she loved me, though. I mean, you know, obviously, I like my kids. Said she, she lived for me. She tried her best. And I know that, but it wasn't her fault. And uh, so it was hard. Sometimes Allison looks through old photos of her mother from before she was born. And she feels like a completely different person from the woman who raised her. I think where I learned about her was through the pictures. Through the pictures when she was younger. I can imagine, oh, I could see that, oh yeah, here she is laughing and her and my father. They're all in love, they're camping, and they're, you know, she's posing and smiling. And, you know, like there was in the 50s and they looked happy. I, I didn't know my mother that way. And even today... She mourns for the relationship that the two of them could have had. The relationship that was ripped away from them by Dr. Cameron, by the Canadian government, and by the CIA. I was thinking about it this week. Something struck me. I've, uh, I feel lonely all the time. And I think, I think it's because I didn't have that relationship. Just like an animal, when they don't have a relationship, you know, if they don't bond with their, their mother, they're missing something. So I, I, I think I realize it's probably true. I'm still fine and get along and everything, but I think deep down I, I do have that. Imagine 70 years old <laughs> saying such a thing. <laughs> The research done at the Allen Institute as part of MKUltra was never able to create a way to brainwash people. But it does have another equally dark legacy. Some of the work that they were doing there, especially the sensory deprivation work, they found to be very successful in some ways. I mean, there are people today who are saying that the research that was happening at the Allen Memorial Institute in the 50s and 60s the work that Donald Hebb was doing and the work that you and Cameron were doing kind of laid the foundation for contemporary torture techniques. The research was used in CIA handbooks. You can see how that research has influenced what was being used in Guantanamo Bay. The aftermath of the horrific experiments done at the Allen Institute can still be felt today. 
When you damage a parent and the parent's no longer able to look after their children, it affects all the family and the children down through generations. For me, this is really a story about us subjecting some of the most vulnerable people in our society to some really horrific things, and that we need to work harder to protect our vulnerable citizens. We let this one charismatic man get away with whatever he wanted, and nobody did anything about it. That's your episode of Commons. If you like this episode, please leave us a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. This episode relied on work done by Lisa Ellenwood, Michelle Shepard, Chris Oak at CBC Podcasts, Adrian Clarkson at CBC's Fifth Estate, Harvey Weinstein, John Marks, and many, many others. If you want to get in touch with us, you can tweet us at CommonsPod. You can also email me, arshi at canadaland.com. This episode was produced by me, Noor Azria, and Jordan Cornish. Our managing editor is Annette Edgefor. Our editor-in-chief is Karen Puglesi. And our music is by Nathan Burley. You can listen to Commons ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. If you value this podcast, please support us. We rely on listeners like you paying for journalism. As a supporter, you'll get premium access to all of our shows ad-free, including early releases and bonus content. You'll also get our exclusive newsletter, discounts on Canada Land merch, invites and tickets to our live and virtual events, and more than anything else, you'll be a part of the solution to Canada's journalism crisis. And you'll be keeping our work free and accessible to everybody. Come join us now. Click the link in your show notes or go to canadaland.com slash join. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada Land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support CanadaLand. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a CanadaLand supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's going to get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.